Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant, and Chris Smith. What's new in the world of science for you? Well, something that really caught my eye this week is a really nice study about our moon. You can't miss the moon, it's up in the sky, and if you've looked at it in any detail, you'll see that it's covered in craters. We call it the man in the moon, but if you look mm. more closely, you'll see that those markings are the vestiges of impacts from a huge bombardment that the moon has been subjected to, and also the Earth, over the last four and a half billion years since the solar system got put together. But what's really intriguing is the story that those craters can tell us. And in the journal Science this week is a report by a guy called James Head, who's a researcher at Brown University. And what he and his team have done is to publish a really comprehensive survey and analysis of where those craters are on the moon and what they can tell us about the moon's history. And the way they did this was to use a NASA probe called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, the LRO, which was actually put up into orbit last year. And you may have heard of it because if you remember last year, NASA also sent the L-Cross mission, hmm. this impactor, to collide with the moon's surface on the south pole of the moon in a, in a crater. The idea being to test what was in the surface crust of the moon, see if there was water there. And they did find quite a bit of water. But that probe, the LRO, is still scanning the moon's surface. And it's got an altimeter, a height recording device built into it. It's one of the instruments that it carries, called LOLA. And this altimeter is able to give very accurate data on the surface topography of the moon. So what the researchers have been able to do is to map in very precise detail where all the craters are, all over the moon's surface, specifically looking at the ones that are really big, more than 20 kilometres across, so big beasts. And what they're then able to do is to work out the distribution of those craters, the relative sizes, and how those craters overlay on each other, how they are arranged relative to each other. Because if you've got lots of little craters that are peppering a big crater, it's obvious that the big crater must have been there first, and then the little ones have come along subsequently, because if a big one landed on the little one, it would have wiped away the little ones. So you can tell what order these craters occurred on the moon's surface in from this kind of analysis. And that's what they've done, and they've been able to build up a picture of where on the moon the oldest bits are, they've identified those regions, where on the moon the youngest bits are, and also it's informing our understanding of how the early solar system would have put itself together, because at one point in Earth's history there was something called the Very Heavy Bombardment, and lots of asteroids came raining down on the Earth about 3.9 billion years ago. And we wanted to know really when that happened, how it happened, and whether they were all big ones, all small ones, or whether they were big ones to start with and small ones later. That history is written into the moon's surface and is revealed by this study. So it's telling us an enormous amount about how the early solar system put itself together, which I think is fascinating to think that the footprints of 3.9 billion years ago are still up there um, in those impact craters. Excellent. All right, well, the first one comes from Will Gray, and he says, I was wondering if any atoms remain in the body throughout an entire life from birth to death. So, do they, Chris? 
It's almost certain that they do, yes. If you think about the things that you have for your entire life, DNA is a really good example. DNA consists of carbon and oxygen and nitrogen, and there's phosphorus in there and some sulphur as well. And in those DNA molecules, those atoms will be in some cells which last a lifetime for your life because you're not actually exchanging those atoms. In order for DNA to have structural integrity, there must be atoms in there that don't change. Occasionally they do um, have to change because the DNA gets corrupted or damaged or mutated, in which case some of the genetic letters can be replaced. But on the whole, you try and hang on to those letters for life in some cells, especially, for example, nerve cells in the brain. So there will be some cells where you have that same DNA for life. Other cells do turn over. In other words, they, they re get replaced and die. Some cells do that on an hourly basis, some cells a daily basis. Red blood cells last 120 days, and we now know, for example, that fat cells uh, last about 12 years. And scientists have done that by using carbon dating techniques and uh, they're able to work out how old someone is on the basis of uh, the carbon-14 to carbon-12 ratio in a person's DNA, and they also used this same technique to work out uh, how often fat cells get renewed in the body because there was this claim that the fat cells that you're born with are the ones that you have to make last a lifetime, and so if you get fat as you get older, it's because the individual cells are getting bigger, not more numerous, and this piece of research done by researchers in Sweden at the Karolinska Institute in about the last 12 months or so showed that in in fact, you can make new fat cells during your life, so you get fatter by making not just bigger cells, but more of them. All right, so it's nothing to do with the chocolate I eat then. <laughs> well, it is, because chocolate is about 30% sugar by weight and 30 to 50% fat by weight. So chocolate is incredibly fattening, unfortunately, Sue, but it tastes great. Doesn't it just? All right, well, let's go to our phones now, because we've got Les on the line from over. Good evening, Les. Good evening. Hello there, you've got a question for Dr Chris. We share a tea bag, myself and the other half. She has a half a cow's worth of milk and I have very little. My cup always ends up with a scummy deposit on the inside and hers ends up comparatively clean. <laughs> so what you want to know is why have you got a scummy cup and the other half hasn't? Yes, well, the reason is down to the milk, as you've worked out. Milk has got, as you rightly say, a lot of fat in it, but it's also got a lot of calcium. And tea contains a lot of tannin. And I think what happens when you add the milk to the tea is that the calcium binds onto the tannins, locks them away, so they can't stick onto things. And the tannins are the dark-coloured pigments. So because you're not putting much milk in, and I suspect you probably make your cup of tea first, because I think you probably like quite strong tea, and I reckon you put the tea bag in your cup first, and then I reckon you put it into the other half's cup, by which time she gets a slightly weaker cup of tea. So you get a really strong tea with lots of those tannins, those dark-coloured pigments in, uh, you then add a lot of milk to her cup, and there's relatively few tannins for the milk to bind to anyway, but you put just a tiny bit of milk in your cup, and there's therefore an excess of tannins, not enough milk and calcium to soak up those tannins, so they stick on to the other things they can, which is often lime scale on the surface of the water and on the inside surface of the cup, and they bind onto it and stain it brown. All right, Les. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Les. So I've got a question on Twitter here from yeah. David Worley94. Yep. And he's asking, how can we use nanotechnology to fight diseases? Hmm. Um, I think that's a really interesting question because this is the way it's all going, actually. In the early days, people were thinking about uh, giving various drugs and things and 
these drugs will go to a certain part of the body and kill a microbe or something. But increasingly, we're realizing that actually using small technology, purpose-built molecules, can actually make an enormous difference to health and disease. And people are now beginning to look at ways to build little tiny molecules and structures that will self-assemble and form more complicated structures that can go into the body and do various jobs. So, for instance, rebuilding enzymes, designing enzymes, which are like miniature machines, if you like, designing them from scratch to do certain jobs inside the body. So if a person has a certain disease which is caused by a build-up of a certain substance, we could use nanotechnology to build a bespoke enzyme or in other words a chemical machine that could go into a person's cells and then break down whatever the chemical is that's building up that's making them sick and that kind of thing. So I think there's, there's everything to play for. Nanotechnology just means the science of the very small and we're increasingly playing around with science that's in this tiny molecular domain now and when we purpose build drugs and things like that we're effectively playing with nanotechnology anyway I'd say. All right, well, David Van Bunt via Facebook has been camping and he thought about this question last week. Um, He says, does charred wood burn as well as used wood? Chris. Well, when wood is charred, what has happened is that wood, which is a polymer of glucose molecules, which have been stuck together to make a substance called cellulose, um, that molecule, when you heat it up in a fire begins to break down and it produces various chemicals which include alcohols and other volatile substances. And depending upon what wood you burn, there are other things in there as well. So if you burn conifers and spruce and pine and things, you get a lot of turpentine um, because they're turpenols and very oily. And so these things come off of the wood and make the wood burn and make the wood burn very well. If you've ever burned um, spruce and things, you'll see that it does burn really quite vigorously with quite a yellow flame because all these oils are coming out and they are burning and making the flame burn yellow because the sooty components are glowing yellow in the heat of the fire. But as those volatile agents get consumed by the fire, what is left behind is a carbon skeleton, which then in turn reacts with oxygen coming in from outside and forms carbon dioxide and breaks down. So when you first burn wood, you're burning off these volatile agents, these alcohols and these other oily chemicals that can come out of the wood. But with time, you then end up burning just the carbon. And the benefit of burning just the carbon is that it becomes a very clean burn. That's why we like um, having barbecues with charcoal, because Mm. this is wood where all of those volatile agents have been removed and there's just the carbon. And when carbon reacts with oxygen, you get CO2, which is a clean burn. The problem is that you've used up some of the energy in the wood haven't you because you've burned off those volatile and oily agents which were giving you some heat so what's left behind is just carbon so it's got less energy in the charred wood than in the original wood but that doesn't mean that it can't still burn well um, but you will need to to get it going and it won't burn the same way as normal wood will because it will smolder away it won't have big flames because the flames are the volatile agents burning I'll get my veg kebabs out then. Now, Bob in Essex um, has a question talking about oxygen. He says, are there any creatures of any significant size that live on the Earth, not underwater, that don't need oxygen? Mm, Good question. I'm not aware of any. Most of the life on Earth uh, that has evolved and become macroscopic, in other words, big things, have used an oxidative metabolism. In other words, they use oxygen to oxidise sugars and in oxidising those sugars they turn them into energy which they can use in their cells and they produce carbon dioxide as a waste product. And the reason that most big life has evolved to do that is because when the Earth, well, a few hundred million years ago, the Earth 
suddenly underwent a process called the Great Oxidation, when oxygen levels on Earth went from being very, very low to very, very high, more than 20, 25, 30% in the atmosphere. And so, therefore, life evolved to take advantage of that massive amount of oxygen that was around, and as a result, metabolisms evolved to use oxygen for big animals. That's not to say there aren't animals around that use other things, and there are some animals, you could call them animals, they include these things that look like blobs of mucus, actually, that live in caves, uh, especially close to volcanoes, and these animals uh, actually use hydrogen sulphide as their source of fuel. Um, I don't believe they use oxygen at all. So there are some specialist creatures, but not very many, and they tend to be very small, so there's nothing big that's uh, non-oxidative, I don't think. But then, of course, don't ignore the, the microbes, because bacteria can do anything, and they were the first life on Earth. They're some of the most successful inhabitants of the Earth, and they can occupy virtually any niche on Earth. If you go three kilometres down underground in a gold mine in South Africa, you can find bacteria that are being uh, powered by radiation coming out of the rocks. If you go to uh, the core of a nuclear power station that's melted down Chernobyl in Russia, you can find microorganisms growing in the reactor core, which are using various uh, enhanced met metabolic feats in order to survive in that very harsh environment. So bacteria are amazing. They can, they can use anything pretty much as far as we can tell so big life not so much small life definitely okay i've got dom on the phone in newmarket hello dom hello hello there what's your question for dr chris um, it's how does a radio control clock work and where does it get the signal from all right excellent chris hi dom um the answer hi. is that a very altruistic broadcaster and I, I'm not sure if it's British Telecom because of a legacy of the GPO days. We'd have someone, someone who works for British Telecom can tell us. But there is a series of central transmitters that send out on a certain frequency to which all these slave clocks are tuned a time code. And all those clocks are listening into that frequency and comparing it with what they think the time is. And if there's a disparity or when the clocks go forward and back with the, the spring and, and the autumn, then the clock resets itself automatically. So they're listening in to a centrally originating broadcast which is on a certain frequency to which the clocks are tuned okay all right thank you all right let's go to your twitter question then chris yes alfie stepani wants to know why is it uh, that when you take ice straight out of the freezer it sticks to your tongue and the reason alfie and it's very painful isn't it mm. uh, is that the ice is so cold when it comes out of the freezer minus 20 or so that it's got sufficiently low temperature that when you first stick it onto your tongue the saliva the water on the surface of your tongue freezes with the contact of the ice and as a result your tongue is quite literally frozen to the ice cube and you can either peel it off which becomes really quite uncomfortable or what you can do is wait until the very high blood flow through your tongue because your tongue has a really high blood flow and is therefore at a high temperature you can wait for that to melt the bond between you and the ice cube and you'll then be free again this doesn't work with dry ice though if you put a piece of dry ice which is solid carbon dioxide in your mouth it's about minus 70 degrees c and that's a lot harder to thaw out um i was in a lab once and someone did put a piece of dry ice on their tongue and it stuck and it was very uncomfortable for them and they got frostbite on their tongue well they had a blister there anyway uh, it wasn't very pleasant so don't do it if you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast.
Uh, let's go back to our uh, questions that are coming in here. We've got one here that's come in on the email and uh, it's from Dave in Norfolk. And he asks, I often listen to bird and animal recordings and I've often wondered how birds know how to communicate. Young foals can walk without being taught and babies cry and suckle instinctively. Has there been any research into basic instincts that we are born with? Oh, there's lots of research and people are very interested in this because it could tell us something about the genes that are involved because if you look at how an animal evolves or if you compare one group of animals with another group of animals and ask how they're genetically different in certain parts of their brains and nervous system and so on, you can begin to understand a bit about how genetics drives the process of innate behaviour because there are some things that have to be programmed into genes. Animals that know how to walk when they're born, animals that know how to hunt when they're born without ever being shown, animals that know how to be scared of the right things. Mice, for example, are genetically programmed to be terrified of the smell of cats. And it's not a fallacy, it's absolutely true that mice have this intrinsic and innate desire to avoid anywhere that a cat has been, unless they get infected with toxoplasmosis, a parasite that passes through the gut of a cat, in which case the parasite makes the mouse lose its inhibitions where cats are concerned. Uh, mice, for instance, also are nocturnal. They don't go out in the daytime because they might get eaten by a cat, unless, again, they get toxoplasmosis, and then they forget that they don't want to go out in the daylight, and they start doing that. So the answer is that there's lots and lots of things being studied about this, but it's very, very difficult connecting a behaviour to a set of genes or the way in which a certain cluster of nerve cells are working. But scientists are beginning to try and understand this because it will give us clues in terms of how our own brain works because many of the things that are present in animals are present in our own brains and usually by taking a simple system, an animal brain, and then asking how does that relate to a bigger system, our own brain, you can solve a big problem how our brain works by studying a simpler one. Dr Chris there to answer your questions. Chris, um, lovely Gerald has sent me an email about the time and the clock question and he says the transmitter in the UK is from the National Physics Labs in Rugby. The controlling radio signal for the National Physical Laboratories clock is transmitted on the MSF 60 kilohertz signal via the transmitter at Rugby operated by British Telecom International. This should have a range of some 1500 kilometres or 937.5 miles. All of the British Isles are of course within this radius. How fantastic is that? Now you've got a couple of uh, tweets I think haven't you? Uh, face, face ache actually. Face ache. If you want to check out our Facebook page uh, we've got a Facebook page for Naked Scientists and you can just type your questions in there and we'll uh, answer them for you, pick them up. We've also got a Twitter page running so you can tweet at Naked Scientists if you'd like me to look at those Jennifer Cameron says what's the smallest thing that you can see with a regular microscope? Well the way in which a regular light microscope works, it's called a light microscope because it's using visible light in order to see things, means that you're restricted by the wavelength of the light itself. So red light has a wavelength of about a micron-ish, and down at uh, blue light you've got about 540 nanometers, so half of a micron, a micron being um, a thousandth of a millimeter. So with that kind of wavelength you can see things which are roughly half a micron to one micron, one micrometer across, just about. Um, as little tiny specks in the cell. So you're, you're looking at things which are about the size of a bacterium in cross-section. Some viruses can be seen because some of the big viruses, pox viruses, and a family of viruses called the mama and the mimi viruses, the mama viruses because they're the mother of all viruses because they're massive, these viruses are big enough because they're, they're bigger than some bacteria to be seen as well under a light microscope. So those are really the smaller structures, but anything smaller you're going to need an electron microscope 
and that works because rather than using visible light to resolve what's under the microscope, it uses a beam of electrons, and electrons being absolutely tiny, they have a much smaller wavelength, and therefore they can resolve much smaller structures. So you have an electron microscope to look at the fine detail of, for instance, subcellular structures and viral particles, for example. Mm. All right, well, let's, can we go over to the phones now because we've got Michael on the phone. Hello, Michael. Ah, good evening. Hello uh, there. Right, yeah. you're through to Dr Chris. What's your question? I suffer from COPD, um, obvious causes smoking, yeah. Um, has there been any progress in stem cell treatment for regrowing the, the small airways? Hello, Michael. I'm sorry to hear about your problem, and you're quite right that COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, the commonest cause of that is smoking, uh-huh. um, but it's not the only cause. And some people right. can be exposed occupationally to dusts yeah. and other things which can irritate the lungs, and they cause COPD. Uh, it is a spectrum which includes a bit of emphysema and too much mucus production in the lung and narrowing of the airways in the lung, in other words, a bit of asthma-type change, yeah. which makes yeah. it hard to breathe. And people like you will complain that they find it hard to catch their breath and they get tired easily. Uh-huh. Um, the damage that's been done to the lung under these circumstances includes a number of changes. One of the things that happens is that the cells that make mucus in the lung become too numerous. So you end up with too much mucus being produced. The airways are also normally in a healthy pair of lungs lined by uh, what are called ciliated epithelial cells. If you zoomed in with a very powerful microscope on these cells, what you would see is protruding from their surfaces are little thin hair-like extensions from the cell surface that can beat. And they beat and they make a current which wafts the mucus that the cells next door to them are are making. Uh And this is called the mucociliary escalator. And what its job is to do is to coat the airways with a very thin, sticky layer of this mucus, which traps foreign particles and viruses and bacteria and other gunk. And Uh it sweeps it out of the lungs and up to your throat where you then swallow it. And it then gets dealt with by the acid in the stomach. And also things in it get shown to your immune system in order for the immune system to learn what's good and bad. Some people can get away with smoking and they don't get much lung damage. And they can be identified genetically. Some people are very, very sensitive to what's in cigarette smoke and they are very, very quickly seeing changes to their lungs and damage. But the chemicals in the cigarette smoke alter the epithelium, that surface layer in the airway, and Uh instead of having those fine hairs, what it does is it just forms a piled-up layer of flattened cells which can't clear the mucus. Uh And this means it builds up in the smoker's lung. Chemicals that are in it get trapped there, and the airways are then exposed to those chemicals for much longer, which is why you get further damage and you can put yourself at risk of cancer, for example. And those changes, which are called metaplasia, we don't know how reversible they are. In some people who stop smoking, um, it's possible that some of the changes will undo. But if you've got to the stage where you've got quite bad symptoms, the best thing you can do is to absolutely make sure that you don't make the damage any worse by compounding it. By, by not smoking, and I'm okay. sorry to have to, to lecture you, but no, there's no, no, other, right. there's no uh, other advice I can give no you other than no. try and stay away from dusty yeah. environments and, and the smoke that did it in the first place, yeah. unfortunately. But to return to your original point about stem cells, yeah. what scientists have done in the last 12 months is to show that it is possible to regrow lung tissue in a laboratory. Uh-huh. Now, they've cheated a little bit because what they did, and they did this in rats, but the technique could work in a human, they take a lung from a rat, they add to the lung tissue 
a detergent solution which kills all the cells and gets rid of them and it leaves behind a very delicate scaffolding structure. And what you then do is take stem cells from a newborn rat and you put those stem cells into this scaffolding and some kind of signals written into the scaffolding tell those cells to turn into new lung tissue oh, and it, you yeah. can grow in a pot a yeah. whole new lung and the researchers were able to plumb that lung in in that rat it, and yeah. it worked as a lung oh, and this right. shows that theoretically in the future it will be possible if we can work out how to make those lung scaffolds naturally yeah. or maybe take a lung from a donor and get rid of all the cells, you would end up then with a genetically compatible to you new, fresh, fully functional lung if uh, they can get this right. So it is happening in the laboratory. Right. I, I personally don't think it will be that long, and by that long I don't mean tomorrow, but I mean it's closer now than it's ever been. Oh, excellent. Thanks very much. Look after yourself, Pleasure. Michael. Let's go over to your uh, tweets and Facebooks, uh, Chris. What have you got there? Okay, one quick update on the transmitter question, which I knew asking everyone to contribute would be a good idea mm. because everyone always knows interesting things like this. Um, Mark uh, in Bletchley has said the MSF low frequency has now moved from rugby to Cumbria. Rugby has been turned off. So there's a little update for you on that one. Karen Park says, and this is on face our Facebook, Naked Scientist Facebook page, when you turn off a gas burner that has brought a pot of liquid water to the boil, why do you see more steam after turning the burner off than when it's actually running. And I think the answer to this, Karen, will be that when you've got the pot on the boil and you've got lots of heat going in, so the water's actively boiling, you'll see those big bubbles arising from the bottom of the pot and so on. I think what's happening is that the water has got so much energy that it leaves the pot and the water vapour then goes a long way from the pot before its energy level, in other words its temperature, drops sufficiently for it to condense back into droplets of water, which is what steam is, and it does that a long way from the pot. But when you slow down the boiling rate again, or turn the heat down, or take the pot off, the amount of energy in the water drops, and therefore the amount of energy that the water molecules have got as they leave the water is going to be a little bit lower, and therefore I think they're probably going to start condensing sooner, closer to the pot, the impression you're seeing more steam what you're actually seeing is the steam occurring the formation of that water vapor closer to the surface of the water giving the impression there's more steam there so i think that's the reason Mm. All right. Well, uh, we've got a few callers uh, to come up as well with some great questions. Um, Francine in Peterborough, however, has said, and this made me smile, why are women scared of mice? Is this biological? I think it is. I think this is a really interesting example of nurture rather than nature. Um, because my wife, for example, says she's scared of snakes because her mum said she was scared of snakes. Mm. And I, I think it's one thing rubbing off on another because we are very intelligent animals and we are social animals, which means we place enormous emphasis on what we see going on around us and what we see other people saying and doing as we're growing up. And if we see someone react in a certain way to something, we think, well, we have to behave the same way because there's probably a good reason why they're doing that. It doesn't always work in the case of being scared of mice, for example, but in many cases it does help you and it helps you to survive and it helps you to, to not get eaten or beaten up or killed or robbed or whatever following the example of others. And I think probably this is an example of nurture rather than nature. Hmm. All right, we've got Stella on the phone. Hello, Stella. Hello there. Hello there. What's your question for Dr Chris? I want to know, and I'm intrigued, is the centre of the earth becoming hollow? Because when you have uh, volcanoes blow the top, lots and lots of muck and dirt stuff come out, you have lava flows which often run for years. What replaces what's come out of the earth? 
Mm, good one, Chris. Hello, Stella. Um, Hello there. The answer is that the amount that comes out is so tiny compared with the amount that's in there for a start it would it would be a negligible difference but the more the main point is that you're not getting something for nothing the stuff which is in the earth is often surface material which has over billions of years been recycled back into the core of the planet so we know that the planet is recycling uh, materials from the surface taking them down into the mantle and then re-melting them and returning them to the surface as magma again a long time later and scientists are able to do this by looking at for instance the age of the seafloor because we know that ocean floors are continuously being formed at what's called mid-ocean ridges and this is where there are two plates and this this ridge structure and magma appears in the seafloor at this mid-ocean ridge and the whole of the seafloor moves away from the mid-ocean ridge to make space for it and it moves out to the edge where there's the margin with the continent and then the seafloor is subducted again under the continent and melted so this whole thing goes round and round in a circle and you're replacing the stuff that's coming up in volcanoes all the time in that way so in other words two things one is the amount is tiny relative to the size of the earth and two um you're melting surface material and subducting it down into the core again well not quite the core but into the mantle and then later on returning that back as a new volcano somewhere else thank you thank stella you lovely to have you on the program thank you very much indeed Bye. Bye-bye. Now then, Chris, let's go back to um, a question here that's come in from Curtis the cabbie, actually. This is uh, interesting, on the text. And he's asking, how do dolphins drink? Any ideas? Well, marine mammals, like dolphins and whales and things, um, they obviously have to watch their water intake because if they were to drink seawater, then uh, they could end up compromised if they drank too much because you've got to get rid of all that salt somehow. So many of those sorts of creatures don't actually drink the seawater. They get all the water they need from the food that they eat. So when they catch fish, fish have actually got quite a lot of water in their bodies. So they get water that way. And when you actually run your metabolism you're burning glucose which is c6h12o6 when you burn glucose in oxygen so you take c6h12o6 plus six molecules of oxygen 6o2 and what that goes to is six molecules of carbon dioxide 6co2 plus six molecules of water 6h2o plus a whole bunch of energy um, so just by actually breaking down glucose you make quite a lot of water anyway so many creatures are adapted to get the water that they need that way that's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 